who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back to season two of Reppin', a podcast about all things representation, from race, gender, orientation, to personal representation like ideas, values, and beliefs. I'm Evelyn, a television producer director with over 25 years of experience, and I want this podcast to be a place where you'll meet notable people and hear some of their experiences that gives you insight towards who they really are and what they stand for. Some episodes were recorded prior to the coronavirus pandemic, so I hope that this finds you and yours all well and safe, and that this podcast gives you a bit of a break and reminds you of all the compassion, strength, and goodness that's out there. Having said that, I'm excited to kick off season two of Reppin' with an incredibly talented actress with a stunning list of credits that include New York Undercover, The Cosby Mysteries, the iconic series Law & Order and Law & Order SVU, The Fugitive, Daredevil, ER, Gossip Girl, Blue Bloods, Hawaii Five-0, Younger, Blind Spot, woo, and it just keeps going on. And most recently, you can see her as Rafi on Star Trek Picard. You'll see she's not only incredibly talented, but she's a wonderful human being, and you'll love her as much as I do. Today, we're kicking off season two with the amazing Michelle Hurd. First of all, Michelle, thank you so much. I love seeing you. Love seeing you too. Love being here with you. How have you been? I've been good. I'm uh, having a great job and uh, I'm really enjoying myself. So Michelle, at this point in the show, usually I like to tell the audiences a list of your credits, but let me ask you this. With you, I think the question would be, what show haven't you been on? I know, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's funny, you know, I have to say as an actor and as a journeyman actor, because I'm really a journeyman actor. I was never like the ingenue or whatever. After working for so long, I started to do this. Um, I had this sort of like game with myself. I wanted to get on any show that I watched and I wanted to be on every network that's on TV. And so that every network and every studio would know who I am. So that's literally what I would actively do when I would audition for stuff. That's amazing. I think goal accomplished. Yep. Thank you. So do I. You did the first two seasons of Law & Order SVU. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I obviously met on Blind Spot, Mm -hmm. but you've been on 90210. You've been on Hawaii Five O. Lethal Weapons, ER. I mean, just keep going. It keeps going. It keeps going. So you are the real deal. But let's talk about when you first started. I mean, back in the day of like Law and Order SVU. But your career started even before that. Yeah. Yes. My um, when I got out of college, I graduated Boston University School for Theater Arts, and I'm a New Yorker, native New Yorker, Greenwich Village. Yeah, girl. Hey. So I came back to the city, and I started doing theater, just like all kinds of theater, stage, um, stage readings, Lord A B C D, off Broadway, off 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 off, off Broadway. And Broadway. Um, uh, there was at one point where I, I, I said I had to go to like no paying theater gigs anonymous because like the phone would ring. I'd pick it up and I'd go, yes, and hang it up. Damn it. I said yes again. But there's no better way as an actor to get your legs and to get your just your, you know, skills up to par by other than being on stage in front of a live audience. From that, I found that I was, I love doing theater, but I wasn't making any money and I'm a terrible waitress. I mean, like (laughs) no joke. Wait, I'm a terrible, like I even uh, registered with a temp agency and the temp agency sent me out to an office one day and that office called the temp agency when at the end of the day and said, never send her out again. (laughs) I was terrible. I literally was like, you know, I'd pick up the phone and I'd try to push the buttons. And, I mean, it was just dreadful. <laughs> so I, I realized that I needed to start making money. And um, that's when I started to, uh, I actually did extra work, tons and tons of extra work in, in movies and TV shows and commercials. And um, so much so that there was a, when, and this is dating myself, but whatever, when they were shooting Kings of New York with uh, Christopher Walken, uh, directed wow. by Abel Ferrari, there was a... Um, an actress didn't show up to be Roger Smith's wife. And because I'd done so much extra work in eighties and D, you know, they all knew me. They literally looked in the audience like, Michelle, Michelle, come here. And I was like, Whoop, you know, great. And I, <laughs> I, I was all, you know, all of a sudden they gave me um, the wife of Roger Smith. So th- from there, I, um, I just started l- trying to seek out more on camera stuff because you can make money. And uh, I worked on a soap opera on Another World. Yep. Another World was my very first. Oh my God. When they were back in Brooklyn. When they were back in Brooklyn, actually. Absolutely. And I played Dana Kramer, ADA Dana Kramer. So I was a a lawyer, a district attorney. And um, I remember my very first day on set, you know, I'm like straight out of college, 20, whatever, 21, 22. And uh, it was a opening arguments to a, a jury and all of the sort of, you know, soap opera divas or whatever were in the scene. And I'm standing up there about to give an opening statement, like my knees were shaking. My, you know, I'm trying to be really cool. Like, oh, this is no problem. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> talking about like trying to get your energy over the uh, the hump there. But so I did that, and um, from that, I just started doing on camera stuff. Yeah, you have a really crazy list of credits. Now, you said you were a New Yorker, and and yeah. going back, I guess a way to say this is, in in some ways, we both of us being minorities. Yeah 
were fortunate to grow up in a city like New York that had yeah. so much diversity. However, having said that, you know, media and entertainment wasn't very diverse at that point. Oh, no. Yeah. So can no. you tell me some of the inspirations or or influences you had or didn't have when you were just starting out in the extra world? Yeah. Because your list of credits, girl, are no joke. Back in the day, starting out, you didn't see a lot of people that looked like you or me. There wasn't really any kind of diversity. I mean, I don't think yeah. that's something that's that's happened until very recently. Until recently, absolutely. Yeah, I remember actually, because I'm biracial, my mother is white and my father's black. My um, mother's born in Blackwell, Oklahoma. I mean, there were like no black people where she grew up. And my dad is uh, Jamaican, but grew up in Harlem. I remember going into my commercial agent and sitting and talking to, you know, talking to them when you first interview with them. And I remember one of the agents asked me where I where I feel like I fit in, like where, where do I um, associate myself? And I knew what he was asking me. I absolutely knew that he was asking me, do I, you know, do I, you know, tag along to the black people or do I tag along to the white people? You know, where do I put myself? And my answer to him was, uh, I'm an actress. So I, you know, give me dialogue, give me a story and I will bring that to life. That's what I identify with. And if you need me to categorize myself as to put a title on me, then put me as a New Yorker because that's who I am. That is awesome. I, that's so badass. You have to. Well, because it's, it's such a strange concept to sort of ask me to own or disown a parent. Because, uh, you know, if I say I'm black, well, where's my mom? My mother carried me. You know, and if I say I'm white, I mean, and I'm clearly not, because as soon as you, I walk into a room, people know that I'm some type of minority. So I find that it, it was one of those moments where you have to really claim yourself, your person, and not sort of, you know, be pigeonholed into to what other people view you as. You know, we have more to offer. Ask me something, hear my voice, and then you'll know who I am. And that's kind of how I've always walked in this earth, truthfully. And, you know, I've never sought, like, for growing up, I didn't see myself represented at all. I, I'd watch a TV show or a movie, and I thought I was the princess. And not till I got to a place where people, you know, were in charge, did I realize that they saw me not as the princess, but as the maid. And, and, and from that moment, you know, I thought, well, that's your perception of me. Because my perception is I'm the princess. I've never played a princess, by the way, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, you, you're a badass. You played every badass in the yeah. in the in the universe. Well, well, that was that was the other thing is that when I started getting options of choosing parts and stuff, my um, for sure, if there was an option between you know wearing heels or carrying a gun, I would choose the gun every time. <laughs> I was like, oh no no no, I, this is boss lady. This boss. I'm not a girlfriend. Uh 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 uh. I'm the boss. I need to repeat this again. I fucking love Michelle Hurd. <laughs> fucking love her. I love you too, honey. <laughs> but I, I have to go. But I have to go back to yeah. something because I'm literally like struck by what yeah. you just said. Like, how old were you when you said, "I'm a New Yorker. I'm not one or the other"? Because I'll be honest with you, when I first started in this business, I wasn't even sure that I was that it was something for me because, mm. on one mm. hand, culturally, you know, I'm supposed. I hate to say stereotypes, but there was a hope for me to do something more practical, more stable. Hmm. You know, my parents were scared shitless that I wasn't going to be able to get a job. Just, right. you know, background aside, just getting a job. Right. And then, you know, there were no Asian people in media. 
and my parents were immigrants. So, you know, we landed in Staten Island and I was like, how the fuck am I going to get from Staten Island to Hollywood? Right. right, right. Like, how the hell do you get there? So I think if someone said to me, where do you see yourself? I honestly can tell you, I don't know I would have the sensibility or the strength or security to say th- what you said. So roughly how old were you about at that time? And where did you get that... I don't need, like, what would you call it? Wherewithal? Balls? I think, courage? Yeah, balls. I think, yeah, all that. <laughs> um, I was definitely in my 20s because it was after college. Right. You know, honestly, I feel when you grow up in a household of, you know, a biracial household. Right. In a time where that's not really uh, popular. I, in fact, I remember, like, my mom, when she, you know, was walking down the street with the three girls, with myself and my two sisters. Uh, I remember somebody came up to us and they they thought she was the babysitter. And uh, because there was, she was like, there's, you know, you don't have children in this day and age with a black person. That would be crazy. And I think growing up in, with such an awareness of the fact that we were minorities and that we were in the taboo thing. I mean, my mom's family, kind of disowned her for a period of time. She has five brothers. They didn't speak to her until we got much older. My father's parents were receptive, but, you know, they're Jamaican. And so literally, like, when they would go over to visit with, like, my father and my mother would go over to visit them. My grandmother would have, like, a single Jamaican woman there. Like, oh, you look who we got here. We got a nice lady who want to come and say hello to you, you know. She's he's married and he, she'd still have like there's a Jamaican single lady. Oh so uh, we were very aware of um, being others by growing up in the village, Greenwich Village and Westbeth Artist Housing. We literally lived in the neighborhood and in a, a building where there were all others. My neighbor, her father transitioned while we were growing up. So, uh, you know, other people saw, you know, see this, this the TV series uh, Transparent. You know, we lived the series Transparent. That wasn't something new. That was just our, my friend Rachel's okay. parent, you know. And this was back in the day. This is back in the day, honey. This is back in the day. So I he mean, really trailblazed. Yep. This is when Greenwich Village was really Greenwich Village, that it was only filled with artists and gay people. So it was really, uh, we were all very aware of who we are, but we were all, uh, as a community, we were supportive of each other. It's interesting that I'm doing Star Trek because Star Trek was one of the only shows that my father would let us see because it was inclusive. Honestly, swear to God, you know, there was there were shows that my father did plays and, and uh, films that he played sort of, um, you know, like not I don't want to say Uncle Tom's, but, you know, the, the butler or this or that. And he wouldn't let us see it because he didn't want us to see him in that representation. Got it. So I, I was never not aware of the fact that we were um, minorities and different. Exactly. I will say though, and this is back in the day, so, but when I went to college in in Boston, you know, very quickly, very, very quickly, I I was um, alerted to the fact that I was a minority, like instantly. I think in college, I played every single different ethnic character that came up. And I, at one point I had to say to the, you know, the teachers, I was like, look, you guys, the one thing I don't have to work on is being a minority. I got that down, <laughs> like down, hands tied behind my back. I'm a fucking minority. You know, you know, I rule. I walk into a room. Somebody's like minority. You know, I don't need that. 
But, you know, I, I said to them that the reason I came to college, just like these other people, is the opportunity to play Juliet. And you guys are not letting that happen. So um, I was all fire and brimstone even in college. I am a fan. <laughs> I love the uh, story of Star Trek. And speaking of Star Trek, you are yeah. on Picard. I'm on Picard. I, like, holy shit, that's huge. Holy shit, exactly. So I, for, for those who don't know, set up uh, the premise of what Picard is, your character, how it fits into the plot. Yes, so Star Trek Picard is, you know, Patrick Stewart uh, yeah. left uh, left Star Trek about 18 years ago, 2018 years ago. So this show, Star Trek Picard, picks up that same amount of time that he's been off screen. So Patrick and Picard have aged 20 years. So that's where our story picks up is to find out where Picard is in those 20 years, how that has affected him and what his dreams and and hopes are now, which is the same thing that's happened with Patrick. You know, these 20 years have had an impact on him where we are, where we are in society and in politics. It affects all of us. How do we navigate now? I, I love our executive producers and our writers because they are just like Star Trek has always been. It holds a mirror up to society. We are affected by what is happening now. We're trying to create a way for, you know, in an entertainment way that we can address the issues that we're all sort of feeling like we're trapped with um, and hopefully show hope, which is what Star Trek has always been about, inclusion and, and, and hope and humanity. Yes. That's what Picard is all about. And, and Rafi is a, she used to work with Picard back in the Federation day, back like 15 years ago. Right. She, as, with the Federation, has a really complicated relationship and they had a falling out. She also had a bit of a falling out with, with Picard. So when he is, you know, he's trying to help this individual, this person who comes to him for help, the Federation's not interested in helping him. The Federation has changed, just like our, you know, government changes and sometimes you trust them and sometimes you don't. And right now there's a issue of trust with the Federation. And um, so he comes to me to, uh, to to sort of gather up a motley crew and get a ship and, and go on a quest to help this individual out. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash realm. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But... I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. Tell me a little bit about your character. Like, how would you describe her? Because she's kind of a badass. Oh, I love Rafi. I think she's she's one of my favorite characters I've ever I've ever had the opportunity to bring to life, and I and it's because she is so perfectly imperfect. You know, she is haunted. She's haunted by uh, decisions and choices uh, that she's made, um, regrets that she has, some situations that uh, you know have happened to her some things that she has caused herself because of these um these these haunting regrets she has vices she's a, got some addictions she leans on alcohol and on a horgle and um and these are crutches for her but it was really important for me to tell this story of an addict because you know as a new yorker uh, you know, I think of addiction and you think of like the person who's nodding out on the side of the street from heroin or, right. you know, the, like drug addicts or alcoholics, you know. Right. But I really wanted to tell the story because we all have this person in our lives, whether they're in our family, their friends, their associates, or you don't even know about it, that are struggling with addiction so much so that they're doing their very, very best just to get up in the day. They're not drinking or smoking so they can get high and kick back on the couch. They're doing those things because they are, it is, it's almost impossible for them to open the, the, the shade and look out the window. It's a coping. to, to, yes, to cope, to pick up the phone and to, to speak with someone, to become part of society. These people who are going through these, this addiction, this, you know, depression, you know, the, the demon on the shoulder are still viable. They're still valuable to society. They can still contribute. We shouldn't push them aside. We shouldn't write them off. We shouldn't just go, oh, well, you know, they went down that hole, you know, that that rabbit hole and we'll never get them back. They're still part of our community and our society and our valued, you know, beings and, and should be supported. And there should be a hand, you know, reaching out to help them up. Rafi is, is going through all this those things. She's got challenges and she's doing her very, very best just to, um, just to, to, to get up in the day. It's a fucking great show. It's a fucking great show. It really is. And I remember how excited you were when you got it. And I was so excited for you. Star Trek is obviously a hugely successful franchise. And I think that would still be an understatement, but I think you also said it best. Star Trek has been, I think even back in the day, 
yeah. trailblazer in terms of diversity, a yeah. trailblazer in terms of using this fantastic sci-fi vehicle, but at the core of it, it is a mirror to what we're going through. It, it is addressing social issues that are pretty tricky. Yeah. And so I want you to talk about, you know, being a part of first a franchise that is just, I mean, you have, there's a reason why they're called Trekkies. Yeah. They are rabid fans. Yeah. Being a part of a franchise that is decades long decades, and still yeah. going strong uh, and deservedly so. And then on top of that, talking about issues that matter. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about also Star Trek was one of the few shows that you watched as a child. And That's now you're right. on that as show. A, I know it's crazy as a family. Yeah. I think the thing that, you know, what's so interesting and, and especially because you, you know, the shows that I've been on and yeah. even like Blindspot or whatever, I, I, I think as I've done like four different Dick Wolf shows, you know, I've, I'm like a Dick Wolf kid, you know, I'm procedural. I can, yeah. you know, spew exposition, like nobody's business. I can yeah. validate a scene. I can walk in, give you a report card and walk out and, you know, everybody's good. And I think I always thought that procedurals are the way to push agendas. You know, it's, it's contemporary and yeah. it seems timely. And so that's the way you can push agendas. I didn't realize until I got on the show that sci-fi is where you can push agendas Literally. Tell me more about it. Science fiction in general and, and Star Trek specifically has always wanted to tackle the complexities of humanity and the, the relationships between people. It's always been about, you know, inclusion, exclusion, other isms, uh, immigration. Yes. Racism, bigotry, yes. you know, oppression. And it's every single thing. And and what I love about it is that we're able to tell those stories under this umbrella of sci-fi. So you could sit there and you're watching it, you don't feel like you're being preached to, yes. or you know, or berated. Right. But at the end of an episode, you sort of get a feeling like, huh, that that <laughs> actually hit me. Yeah. That, that's that's actually pertinent. Like I can relate to that. It's like slipping the vegetables in with the dessert. Exactly. It's literally. That sounded gross, you know, but sorry. We, I love that. You've pureed the broccoli and it's in the cheesecake. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's literally. And I think, you know, what an honor it is, especially being a person of color. Right. Um, being a minority, knowing, like, as I said, when we were kids, my father would encourage us to sit around the table or sit around the living room and watch Star Trek solely because it was the only show at that time that had, you know, multiple different looking people, yeah. different colors. I mean, like there were people who were blue and like people right. who had horns, you know, but that's otherisms, right? That's, right, right. That's bringing other people into the same thing, like bringing people, you know, nowadays we would try to say that that's bringing in LGBTQ people, bringing in disabled people, which are still, we're still lacking of inclusive with them. We need, they're here. They're part of our community. They should be in every room. Ageism? Ageism too? Ageism. I mean, and I have to say, this is one of the things that I actually really love about our show. There's not very many shows where you get the perspective of a person of a certain age who sees their mortality. And we have, this show is literally from that perspective, which is valuable because we have a ton of people who are living in that perspective right now, who are not represented. We have all these cute, sassy shows of these young leads running up and down, but you don't have someone who's, who's, who's actually the one who pays all the bills. Right. 
you know, the fact that back in the day, Star Trek was the very first show to have a, an interracial kiss on television. I know. For me, that was like watching my parents, you know, like you actually saw what was happening in your house represented on television, right. which people, you know, all being completely full disclosure, you know, people who are white don't realize that the stories that are told don't aren't told from our perspective. It's only told from their perspective. You know, I, I say this all the time about scripts, you know, scripts come into our house. My husband's an actor. He's a white man. And, you know, you'll get a bunch of scripts that you're trying to figure out if, you, you know, you read for interest. And whenever I read them, it's one of my pet peeves. I read the script and it has like, you know, uh, you know, Mary walking down the street, da, 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 da. she runs into John and blah, 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 blah. They see Sarah and blah, 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 blah. And then Jose, Latino, da, da, da. <laughs> Monique, black, da, da. I'm like, yeah. wait, wait. What, why, why are you talking? Why do we, you know, have to identify these individuals right. as minorities? Right. And then you sort of go, oh, I see. Because the person who wrote this, who's white, is making the assumption that the world they see is white. Right. So they're making an assumption that when I read it, Mary, John, Joe, and John are white. But they don't understand that my perspective is a, a multicultural world. Right. So right. when I'm reading it, Mary may look like me or like you. Right. Or, or it, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean white. Right. So like one of my things is that I would love and I think it would make a step towards people being understanding and empathetic of, a, of people of color is if they want to write scripts and you want to, you know, identify when there's a minority, fine, but identify when there's a white person too. Every single time there's an individual, tell me their ethnicity. If you feel the need to tell me when there's a minority, then tell me when there's the majority. Don't make the assumption that the person who's reading your script is is from the same perspective. The other thing, you know, just jumping on that in, in, in some ways is like, it, it annoys me that anytime I see a minority of, of Asian, yeah. it's like our, our character names are like, you know, Chang Fei or some shit. Right. Like, why can't why? my name be Meg? Right. Exactly. Why do the characters all have these like cliche archetype names? So exactly. I totally get you. But there's something that I wanted to kind of go back to. I mean, I know you work your ass off at every show. Mm. Did you ever take a minute to think about, okay, when you and I were growing up, mm -hmm. you know, I looked at Star Trek. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I like Star Trek, but I'm not like, you're not going to come to my right. house and, and I'm, I'm going to greet you at the door with a, with a jumper. Right. Very you know, good. That's good. not me. <laughs> Not that the people who have those are, that, you know, it's go all right good. ahead. <laughs> Passion is good. I'm all about that. But, you know, we looked at that and, you know, I saw George Sakai and there was mm -hmm. obviously, you know, again, diversity. And it was big for you as a kid, mm -hmm. right? Because it opened doors. It was the only show that we saw our uh, pieces of ourselves. But how does it hit you, Michelle? Because I don't know if you've ever had to take a moment to actually sit back and be like, what those, what those talented actors and those storylines did for you as a kid, you are continuing to do for others. Can you talk about how that impacts you? Oh, I'm very aware of it. I'm, you know, and, and truth be told, I've, I think I've been uh, really conscientious of those, of that reality in all of the choices I've taken um, whenever I work, because I was so uber aware of the fact that I was not represented on, on television. Right. I didn't see myself, you know, cause it's a different, it's difference between, you know, like just seeing a black woman and then seeing a mixed woman. Cause I'm right. mixed, you know, right. Issa Briones, the other girls on the show, who's Eurasian, you know, we talk about that often, you know, that we are actually giving 
people of diverse backgrounds, you know, an opportunity to see themselves validated in entertainment. And it sounds kind of like weird, like who cares about being validated in entertainment, but it's, it's bigger than we realize because art is like, you know, Art's the, you know, the common language between everybody, right? Like you can see a painting, you could speak English, French, Italian, Russian, whatever, right, but right. we all see this, the same painting, right? We all see the right. same art and it's going to affect us in a different way. Right. That's it. So by doing this, we are, sh- we're giving people of, of different colors, of shades, people of color, the awareness that they are part of society. I I equate it like this, you know, growing up in certain schools, you would sit in your classroom in like first, second, third, fourth grade or whatever, and they'd have the pictures of the presidents around the room, right? Right. For the longest time, obviously up until Obama, they were just all a bunch of old white men, right? Right. So we don't know, like, (laughs) you know, consciously or unconsciously what that does to us, right? So unconsciously, we have above us, just a whole bunch of, you know, old white men being the rulers, not a woman, not a minority. So subconsciously, it tells me that that is not where I can be. Right. 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 Now I have two nephews. They, um, today's my Lucien's 16th birthday, one's 16 and one's 13. And all I can think about was that when they were younger, they now see a black man Right. In that thing. So subconsciously, consciously, whichever way they know that they can do that they're part of that world now, that they can achieve that because they see themselves. Right. So by being a minority on television, we are basically giving them that moment and giving people who have color that information that we are here, we are valid, right. we're included in this world. So I'm, I'm really conscious. It's also one of the reasons why the parts that I've taken have always been sort of boss women, because I really want to be a strong representation. I, I never really enjoy being the girlfriend or the wife or the, I will, I mean, I'm the wife on Hawaii Five-O because I love Shy McBride. Um, and I will do that every now and then, because as a woman of a certain age, that's the roles you get. But I really wanted to make the foundation of my jobs for young ladies of color to be about strength, intelligence, power, command of a situation, and to give them that template that they could go forward. It's important. I think that's amazing. I mean, but just also landing on a on a, such a, an iconic franchise like Star Trek, and now you're on Picard. You're standing on the shoulders of the casts that originated the series and all of the incarnations that sort of preceded you. Mm -hmm. And now you're continuing that and you have the awareness to continue to pay it forward and to shape viewpoints. That's huge. I mean, that's a huge responsibility, Michelle. I mean, I've always known you to be that person, but I think what's really important also is just as I know you and as you talk, we're also understanding a lot of your values and your perspectives and your principles that you fight so hard for. In terms of just navigating the very uncertain Mm. world that we're living in right now. Yep. I mean, there are so many complicated problems and these are really troubling times. Yeah. But you also are fiercely active (laughs) in the Time's Up. You are always about empowering other people. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you're talking about this now, even just in your day to day. How did you get involved with Time's Up? Tell us what Time's Up is, the, the movement, because sometimes people might get a little bit confused with all the different movements that are happening. Sure. Tell me what that is and why that was important for you to get involved. 
Yeah. Time's Up was a, is a really, it's very interesting because people, I think, may perceive Time's Up as this sort of group of actors for some reason that, you know, like a bunch of actresses got together and they're like, Time's Up, let's stop, you know, pay, you know, give us money, make, give us better jobs. You know, that's not what, that's not <laughs> no, what it's, it's not. about. Not so much. Okay. Time's Up is actually a legal defense fund for people who have been harassed, in all formats, whether that's sexually harassed, harassed with intimidation, um, felt to be unsafe at work, discriminated against. And this is in all vocations. All so vocations. not has just been, in entertainment. At all. Like we're like, we're like minimal of it. You know, we had a, in fact, we had, we've, we have a lot of times up events where we gather people together. And then we had this one day called day of listening. And we had women from all different vocations, from the hospitality industry, from the restaurant industry, from the farmers groups, the um, Olympic athletes, sports anchors, so many people and all these women, we broke up into little groups and we told stories about uh, situations that have happened to us. And I can't even tell you, I can't, you know, I, I have a real hard time with injustice. It's really hard for me to sit still and to hear these women talk about uh, the situations that they've been put in and been forced to accept egregious actions against them, forced to succumb to physical engagements against their will, you know, it, it, it's, it's so frustrating. So this Time's Up, which did sort of get galvanized by a bunch of actors, and, you know, I can only say that the beautiful thing about that is that we had a platform for us to jump from so that people could hear and see us. And so now we're here. I mean, that's the advantage, right, of working in entertainment and media is that we have a platform. And we, it's, it's almost a, our duty to pay it back that way. You know, I've been given this, this form, so let me give this back. Um, but what it actually is, is for anybody who feels that they need help. Time's Up has already connected uh, over 4,000 people with lawyers. I think we fully funded about 60 plus cases. We changed uh, earlier this year um, with Governor, Governor Cuomo's um, help. We changed the statute of limitation for rape in second and third degree. Uh, so we're, we're changing legislation, which is the part that I really love because I want to, you know, I'm not just here to yell, but I will yell. <laughs> but I'm, I'm here to change laws because it's right. time to change laws. We're connecting with the women's soccer team right now to start pushing. The U.S. women's e soccer team? Yes. To That's push equal awesome. Pay forward because it's it's time for equal pay to be, you know, front and center. Yes. So, so, you know, Time's Up is a lot more than just a bunch of celebrity actors, you know, doing a PSA. It's actually for every person out there because men are abused as well, but every person out there who, who are, are scared, feel alone, know that there has been some egregious acts uh, uh, acted against them. And we are giving them the opportunity to have legal defense funds and, and representation on to one of the reasons why you know, I am the person I am, this activist and this actress. And we had started to touch upon it when we we're talking about this time and this climate and how yeah. really frustrating and stifling and, and almost uh, petrified it makes us feel paralyzing. like paralyzing. There's the word I'm looking for. You know, I talk to my mother, my father's passed now, but I talk to my mother and, and say, gosh, you know, mom, you know, things are so crazy. I, you know, I, I, I can only try to think about what it was like when you were growing, when you were with daddy, um, how crazy it must've been then. Because when my father and my mother were married, you know, that was back when Dr. King got assassinated, Malcolm X got assassinated, right, right. JFK was assassinated, Bobby 
was assassinated. They, it literally felt like the sky was falling down. And so I said to her, you know, during that time, what did you guys think? What were you think? Like, how, how did you, how did you get up in the morning? How, what did you think? And she said, well, we weren't going anywhere. We were not going to go anywhere. We were here. We're here and we're going to stay here and we're going to, you know, solidify our roots into this world. There's no way that they're going to push us away. So, you know, so even when the, the sky is falling, right. we all have to remember that we're here. You know, we're here and we're not going to be silenced. We're not going anywhere. That if we can just breathe, calm down and remember that we're the majority, we can make change. My dad and Maya Angelou would gather and make, uh, they had something called the Matinee for Freedom, where they would gather all these uh, artists of different uh, you know, races to, to um, sing, perform, do a cabaret, to, to raise money for Dr. King's marches. I mean, my, my father at the age of 18 was a liberator in the Second World War of Dachau. He tells about a story of being a part of a black battalion at 18 years old going into the Dachau. And if you, you know, if we all know the war, that when um, World War II was, uh, was ending, the Nazis tried to cover their tracks and right, right. would just kill the prisoners. And so he walked through the gates and there were bonfires of bodies. And uh, he says that he remembers the smell and the silence. And then all of a sudden they started to see movements. And it said, he said it almost seemed like there were the, um, the wood in the wall started to move. He said it just seemed like people started taking, you know, like arms and hands started coming out of the woodwork. They were skeletal. These were prisoners. And they started saying black angels, black angels, because they knew these were black soldiers. They weren't Nazis. Wow. So they were the safest thing. They knew black angels cut to like, you know, a couple decades later, my dad's on the bus here in New York city. And, um, and he sees somebody like, you know, trying to get get on the bus and he's, person makes eye contact with him and he's, you know, my, you know, New Yorkers were like, what are you looking at? And he sort of like blow blow him away. And the guy got on the bus and my dad said that he felt really uncomfortable because he could tell this guy was looking at him, looking at him. My dad was like, all right, I'm I'm out of here. I'm going to get off the bus, started to get off the bus. And the person reached out, touched his hand and said, black angel. Oh my God. Do you think I could forget the face of the man who saved me? So, you know, this is the household that I grew up in. And and by the way, just to get full disclosure of the country that we live in, my dad at 18 experienced all that right after the war when he came back to the States, he couldn't, you know, a cab would still not stop for him. You know, so with that kind of an understanding, that's the household I came from. And I, I, you know, it became really clear that we can't be intimidated. We can't be pushed down. I want to fight for individuals whose voices have been silenced. I, it's one of the biggest things that I'm trying to get uh, because I'm part of SAG-AFTRA's board. I'm part of, you know, Time's Up. Right. I want inclusion in every single room. I feel like there should be a minority representation. There should be a women, multiple women, and there should be LGBTQ people as well as disabled people in every room. Because when you have someone of all those parties in every room, the perspective and the conversation broadens. Amen. My God. I, oh my God. I just, I just, all I keep saying is I fucking love you. <laughs> I don't know what, and I just like spewed a whole bunch of stuff there too. That was a time. That story about your father and also his encounter uh, on the bus was incredible. My God, that was so powerful. Um, but based on some of the things that we talked about and some of the problems that we're facing in this world, it's hard for me not to be completely paralyzed Sure. Um, and feel so defeated sure uh in in a lot of uh situations that are that are 
that are happening around the world. But where do you get this insatiable hunger for justice and also the fight that you are able to overcome this pe- complete paralyzation that a yeah. lot of people are feeling? You know, it's it, it's really interesting because I, I, I'm curious as to the answer to that too sometimes, you know, like, how is it that I find myself here? What am I doing? Right. But I have to say, you know, like every time I'm on my way to either a Time's Up meeting or a SAG-AFTRA, you know, right. uh, meeting or the Sexual Harassment Code of Conduct Committee or, you know, any of these things, like as I'm walking, I'm like, what are we doing? Well, you know, why am I here in this space? And as soon as I walk in the room and we begin the discussion, I remember, I realize why, because I can't, sit by idly when there's injustice. I just can't. Right. I just can't. It's something against my whole DNA. That's great. You know, uh, it could be because I'm a stubborn, you know, New Yorker. Um, I think I'm empathetic to a fault at times because I feel so much and and, and I'm I'm pained when somebody is in pain right. and they feel that they can't do anything. Uh, then I feel like, well, then fuck it. Let me figure out what I can do. Cause I, I you know, I'm not going to sit, uh, you know, nobody's tying my hands. So I think it's, it really comes from, first of all, growing up in the village where everybody was taboo, you know, every right. single person in the village is, is basically a taboo sort of, you know, thing. I remember very like really young walking down the street um, Westbeth is over on Bethune Street yeah, yeah. between Greenwich Street and, and uh, Washington. And that street used to be called Hugh Hurd's Way, like we would refer to it, my father's name. Because if you were walking down that street and you saw my dad, he would stop you and talk to you for like five hours about just what's <laughs> going on. And I remember one day we stopped and this man who happened to be gay was telling us about he and his partner being beaten up. And that some people had come into the village and, and beat the shit out of them because they're gay. And I I was a child and I remember him saying, you know, how horrible it is that people will beat you up for who you love. He said, if I was in a room and the lights were out and my heart responded to another heart, how can that be wrong? Just because I turned the light on and it's a man. And And from that moment on, I thought, you know, that's absolutely right. Nobody has the right to extinguish anybody's flame. Right. It's just, it, it, I, like I, I, I can't, I can't conceive of it. I don't understand. Right. You know, and as I said, that was as, as a little child, I was probably like five, six or seven. Right. So I was walking with my dad. But from that, from growing up with um, parents that are mixed and, and activists and, and um, artists, uh, I understood the power of the tool of artistry yeah. to connect people and the power and the importance of activism. And I think that's, that's, that's why I walk this the way I walk. <laughs> Well, God, I'm so happy that you are doing that. So this is so I've asked this question before in in past episodes, but I think in your case specifically, my friend, yes, tell me a moment where you realized uh, you made an impact. Mm. You know, let me just kind of unpack this a little bit. Yeah, you were on the first two seasons of SVU. Yes, so you were opening doors for minorities on TV as an actress. Going further from all the roles you've done, they're pretty much all very strong female characters. Mm. I mean, on Blind Spot, you were not somebody that I'd want to ever sit next to. In fact, yeah. I think yeah. I may have said this to you. If I didn't meet you in person, I would be like running the other way if I saw you on the train. I have to say that my favorite uh, interactions with fans is, is my Blind Spot fans because I every now and then I get a, a Blind Spot fan that turns around the corner and just stops yeah. and just like... <gasps> 
Oh, yeah. And I'm like, it's okay. Breathe, breathe. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually just Michelle, not yes. Shepard. Because <laughs> Shepard was just a really scary character. I love her. She's great. So you're opening doors for minorities. You're opening doors for women to play strong female leads. Then there's all your work as an activist. You're working to give others a hand up and a voice. Was there one moment with all of that experience that somebody came up to you and shared a moment that really made you go, wow, I really made an impact on them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You it's know, it's interesting there's, with everything you, that you've done. There, Cause there's a lot. There's, yeah. there's a lot, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because there, it, it, it there, there is, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a little bit, um, I don't generally, uh, refer to it at all because it, it was something that I, I really tried to distance myself from when it happened. I, I had my, uh, uh, you know, situation with Cosby. Um, right. I was, it was right out of college. And once again, I knew that I was not a, I couldn't, I needed to figure out how to make money and I'm not a good waitress, you know, Right. but I, I was doing stand in work on the Cosby show. Right. And like many girls, as we all know now, he targeted me and, you know, he would do these really weird things about, uh, you know, having me come to his dressing room at lunch and we do these acting exercises and he was just, you know, grooming me. And um, he would set it up by like telling you not to talk to any of the right. other actors. Don't tell them what you're doing. D tell your boyfriend that you're going to be working late. I mean, he really sets the tone so that he, he um, can get away with a whole bunch of shit. Growing up as a native New Yorker, I, I had my little delinquent time. So I was a little punk delinquent for a few years there. Thank God for it. Uh, totally. Did, did all my drinking, my drinking and drugs and all that stuff. And, and at a certain point, so, so I, I didn't do anything. So that was a saving grace because uh, every time I'd come into his dressing room, he'd always offer me a drink. And I said, I, I don't drink. But there this one time when he said, I'd love to see what your hair is like straightened. So why don't you come to my house tonight, take a shower and we can straighten your hair. And, and at that moment, did I feel like, did uh, you know, the hair on my uh, um, neck sort of stand up and I knew that this was inappropriate. And I told him, no, I'll just come to this studio with my hair straightened. Prior to that, he'd already been doing some strange acting exercises with me where he would put his hand on your chest and your abdomen and he runs circles and he's touching you. And yeah, so there's all that stuff. So there was a, an afternoon that I was sitting in my place in LA and I think I was watching The View and they were talking about the, the women who were coming forward. And there was this debate about whether they were gold diggers and why were they trying to take down this, this important black man. And I was so infuriated. I was so infuriated. And I called my sister and I was like, Man, this is, you know, pissing me off. And because I had a one, you know, a first perspective uh, scenario. And I said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to put it on Facebook. <laughs> so I, my personal Facebook, because, because I, even in my first personal Facebook, I had people commenting saying those women are all gold diggers. And, you know, it's just, I was like, you guys can't be ignorant and saying stuff. It's ridiculous. So I, I, I wrote my whole story right. and um, posted it. I can't even tell you how many women responded and even told their story on my, just on mine. Then somebody who was a friend said, I'd really love to, to release this to my brother or whatever who works for showbiz online. And I said, no, it's not for them. It's for my, you know, it's just a private thing. There's already 40 women who are telling their story right. and he didn't listen. He released it. So that, yeah. So that got released and literally honey, like within hours, there were people knocking at my front door, calling me, calling my family, harassing right. us. I mean, just, it was insane. That next week I have to say though, on the view, they actually brought up and they said, well, you know, Michelle heard from law and order, you know, she tells about her story and she's, 
doesn't need this to progress her career. Right. So it was one of those moments in time that my managers and my agents and I, we had decided back then because I had told casting, producers, studio, my people, we had told people immediately when it happened. Right. You know, our response, their response was, well, you should be, you know, feel flattered that he's picking you. I mean, it was just terrible. And so I had said to my, you know, people back then, I want to extricate myself from Cosby. I never want my name and his name to be associated. He has nothing to do ever with my career, my choices. Right. So that's why I didn't, you know, I, I stepped away. So cut to these 20, 30 years later, I decided I had to put my name out there um, to help, first of all, just my friends so they were informed. Then it got released. And um, I, you know, I spoke to a few, you know, the lawyers and all that stuff. And I let, let it be known. I was approached multiple times on the sidewalk in supermarkets by women who have been sexually molested. And they told me their story. And they said, because of you, I feel brave enough to speak up. And I, I thank you for putting yourself out there. And in that moment, did I, I realized that my action was bigger than me wanting to not be associated with Cosby. It was about giving people who don't have a voice or a platform a platform. And I think that's the one moment where I realized I'm strong enough. I'm solid within my own person that I will step up for those who feel vulnerable Right. And make their voices heard. I think that's really, that was one of the most sort of impactful moments that I realized like, wow, I don't, I didn't realize that by sacrificing, you know, my anonymity or that secret, it empowered other people. How do you take knowing that you have helped shape and give voice to people who are obviously traumatized, went through a horrible situation. Um, Obviously, you went through a horrible situation as well. But how do you take knowing what you were able to do for all of these other people, probably tons of people that you have never even met or will Mm -hmm. ever meet? Mm -hmm. How do you take that with you in life? And how does that shape you? Yeah. You know, I think what happens when you do something like that, which you know, if I, you know, retract, I didn't want to do anything. Right. I didn't, I I had said it. I made the statement right when it happened. Right. We, you know, we basically did everything that you're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, They gave a, they didn't, they didn't respond. They basically shamed us into like, Oh, come on, you should be happy. You know? And from that, you know, so then, then I, I said, no, cut to, you know, taking the steps and, and releasing all that information to the public. What I found and what I've learned is that it's more empowering than it is harmful. I think we all think that it's going to, you know, like this is going to be it. We'll never be able to work again. You know, people are going to look at me in a different way, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's actually the opposite. It it actually, you realize, you know, I can equate it to um, the success of Oprah, right? Oprah is so successful because she just, she created a forum where she would tell stories or topics that people could relate to. Right, right. People could go, wait, uh, that, that's me. That's me. She created a forum for that. So when you speak out about it from injustices, you actually empower yourself and everybody else because you galvanize, you, you inform, you ignite. 
it's almost like a, a rally call, you know, you, you know, standing on a mountain and you're just calling out and people respond to you. And also you, you realize how you were not wrong. You were receiving actions from somebody who was wrong. And by speaking out, you shine a light on those that are trying to continue to enact wrong actions on others, right? Right. Like by speaking out, hopefully you make people, you know, shameful. Right. And those people who cause these things generally don't have any shame. Right. But you do empower the ones that are being affected, that they can say, so just like the Oprah thing, I was on that episode or something. You know what I mean? Like that was my story. Right. She talked about my story. That means that I'm not alone. So I think the the real, you know, takeaway and it's probably why I'm in so many committees right now is that it just um, it just emboldened me to be more brave and to be more determined, you know, to face injustice, to call it out and to not be kowtowed or intimidated. What can you do to me? What are you going to do to me? You know, even blacklisting, all that kind of stuff. And you just want to go, look, even if you did that to me, me speaking out. There's a hundred other people who will now speak out. Right. And you can't stop us all. It's like turning on the light with a bunch of cockroaches and they just scatter. A hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. Because nobody wants to put that in the light. It's not about shame. It's just about getting caught. That's right. That's right. So I love that. So we've talked about a lot of stuff, which from uh, being minority, mixed race, being a woman, injustice, assault, all of that stuff. And it's it all falls under the umbrella of representation because this is about personal representation as well. So having said that, how would you define representation, Michelle? How would I define representation? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Representation. I, I, I will again reiterate that it's imperative in this time, 2020, that we represent all of us. If I can, you know, continue to strive to like, even I just had a conversation with, uh, you know, some of my peoples of Star Trek to make sure that there's a person of color in the hair and makeup room, you know, because I have this opportunity. I have a job. It's my job. I'm part of it. I'm a person of color. I would like to make sure that there's a person of color in the room. And I feel like that's the thing with representation. If we can at any moment when we have the opportunity to have that conversation to say, I'm so glad that I'm working in this environment. This is great. However, I need to make sure that we have someone else like me in this room because it's not enough to have me right. just here. I need to have me on the other side of the camera as well. In the writer's room, in the in producers, the writer- in the director's chair. Yeah. In the in the camera department. Yeah, in, in the, the grip, in the electric, in the grip to- everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, that's what representation is really fully about. If my personal thing, you know, like I am the crazy lady that will run across the street if I see a little girl or boy with crazy curly hair like mine. I literally will run over and go, hey, I love your hair. It's so cool. Because no one said that to me when I was a kid. Right. You know, when I was a kid, it, this was not cool at all. It was, it should have been straightened. I seek those moments where I can empower and encourage and validate individuals who are not being necessarily included uh, and validated in our society. And that's what representation is, is, is really making sure that we're all seen, we're all heard, we're all included because we're all here. Right. 
we're all here. <laughs> I just, I love that. So having all of this uh, coverage that we've talked about, what do you celebrate about your upbringing or your being mixed or being a woman? What do you celebrate? Um, I, I celebrate life, truly. I, I celebrate it in the most full cognitive way as I can. You know, I'm I'm really aware of mortality. You know, I'm one of those that I understand life and death really well. They go completely together. It could also be because my father has passed, you know, he passed 15 years ago. And so when you lose someone, you're really aware of time and how valuable time is, how precious it is. Not to be, you know, bring it back to my show, but, you know, our show also talks about the sanctity and the um, preciousness and vulnerability of life and love and, and support. I've always found that my favorite thing about life is learning things, is the journey of discovery, of Agreed. possibly being wrong and possibly failing hugely. I mean, it's it's fantastic. You know, you want to be able to learn and to grow and to expand your horizons and, and eat up everything that life gives you because we're here. We're here now. And time is time so is short. So, it's so short. It's so fleeting. It's so right. fast, you know. So there's a concept, I think, especially in our youth, that tomorrow is is sort of like everlasting, like, oh, tomorrow I have so much long time. You know, I can't wait till I'm an old person sitting on a you know porch on a rocking chair. You don't have tomorrow promised. You have today. So live, embrace, explore. As an artist, it's the, the most fulfilling thing that you can do to read something different, to look at something different, to listen to something different, to interact with people who are different because it feeds your perception, which is the same thing as to why it's important to have different people in every conversation. It broadens it. Whatever it is that you want to do, like, don't wait. You just got to run for it. That's right. Do something. Do something. Even if you, even if nobody ever heard of it or sees it or whatever, right. do something. It, 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 it I mean, listen, you. we can all sit and complain about how like this is wrong, this is wrong, but we have to take some accountability and responsibility if we're just sitting on the sidelines belly aching about it. Right. We're just as responsible. You're part of the problem then. You're actually part of the problem. Right. Exactly. I'd rather fail in the most spectacular way Absolutely. than to be on my you know, last breath and go, well, what if, you know, exactly, exactly. And I just want to do what I can to push good people forward and push any sort of positive contribution forward. And, and, and this is part of life. Like why not engage? Right. Why not engage? Right. (laughs) So give me our signature sign off, Michelle. Okay. This is a tricky one. I was trying to think of something good. And then I was like, just let it go, Michelle. Just be what it say, whatever you want. All right. So lay it on me, girl. Let us know who you are and what you represent. My name is Michelle Hurd, and I represent all the curly-haired, crazy, multi-ethnic creatures out there with resilience and tenacity, empathy, and love. With love and thanks to the incredible Michelle Hurd for being my guest. Be sure to check her out on Star Trek Picard on CBS All Access and keep up with her on Twitter. Her handle is at It's Michelle Hurd. Next up, she was named One to Watch by People Magazine. She's a comedian, host, writer, and actress. She can be seen on Good Trouble as Alice Kwan. Sherry Cola stops in. This is Sherry Cola, stand-up comic and actress, and this is Reppin'. 
Reppin' can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So subscribe, leave us a review, and share. We want to hear from you so you can tweet us at Reppin' Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Reppin' underscore podcast. Thanks to my team, my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Pinero, and always to Gracie Kong for her joy and love. Reppin' is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Be well and be safe. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm, not she. They, maybe? W- wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every.